This is a becoming creature. Welcome. I'm really excited to publish this one. If you want to hear more episodes, check me out on becomingcreature.substack.com. This episode meant a lot to me. When I first conceived of this podcast, this conversation is what I had in mind. We talk about health, creative thinking, Gendlin focusing, magic, energy innovation, long-term perspectives, and, of course, the Alexander Technique. I'm really proud of this one. Without further ado, here's the show. I am your host, Nick, and on this special New Year 2021 episode, I have as my guest the awesome, accomplished, affable Michael Ashcroft. Michael is an energy consultant, an Alexander Technique teacher, an online course creator, a writer, and a YouTuber. He is M underscore Ashcroft on Twitter. You can find his writing on his website, michaelashcroft.org. On Substack, you can find his main newsletter at Thinking Out Loud, and his writing on the Alexander Technique is on expanding awareness on Substack. Michael, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. What an intro. <laughs> well, I, I try and make sure everybody gets a good feel for what you bring to the table. A popular New Year topic is dieting. And Michael, you're at the tail end of what I think is a three-day water fast to get back into keto. When you said that earlier, I thought you weren't drinking water for three days. I was like, oh man, that's really hardcore. But can you tell me <laughs> a little bit about your experience and uh, how you've been feeling? Yeah, sure. And I can clarify, I definitely was with fluids. I would not um, endorse any kind of three-day non-water fast. Um, so yeah, I've had a... a a bad behavior a couple of weeks with the holidays um i'm normally on keto but this time i just thought you know all the good food it's dark i've been inside for a year i'm gonna have a bit of fun um yeah. and just after christmas i basically realized okay that's enough of that now um and i think one of the best ways to get back into keto is to do a hard reset essentially so mm -hmm. zero calories coming in for a couple of days i've done three-day fasting in the past um this time I got to hour 44, roughly. Um, nice. And I was on a call a couple of hours ago and realized I was feeling quite spaced out and I didn't want to be spaced out for this call. So I had some some eggs before before talking to you. Well, that's very generous of you. I, pre I appreciate that. <laughs> they, uh, the energy entering your system. I actually, I also do keto. I just started though. I'm a newbie. I started in October. And like you, I uh, took a couple days off on Christmas Eve, uh, they brought these sausages on biscuits and it worked. And I was like, oh, okay, this <laughs> I'm suddenly on a break. And that extended through Christmas. And on Christmas, I had eaten so many carbs. I think it was the most full I had ever been in my life. <laughs> I was like a beached whale. I could barely move. It was horrifying. That's the thing about carbs, right, is that they don't make you feel full in the same way as being in keto does. So the more sugar you eat, the more you want to eat. Right. And you get caught up very easily. Yeah, it's moorish. The, yeah, exactly. The sugar. It also, like, people don't realize that when you start doing keto, a ton of water gets out of your system. And then when mm. you start eating carbs again, 
you just load that water back up and that can feel very uh tense and and uh, tight when you're not used to it yeah exactly and vice versa when you transition onto keto you suddenly lose a whole bunch of water weight um, right which you might not see coming saying oh i've lost loads of fat like no it's just like a few kilos of water can you tell me a bit about your experience with keto overall like throughout your life and Mm -hmm. uh how much time do you typically spend doing keto and how does it affect not only your body but also your mind sure so I've been playing with keto now for maybe three years, um, mm. and I, I tend to spend, I guess, a few months on at a time. And when I come off, I will do it as intentionally as I can, because I think doing a kind of weekly cycle, for example, is is difficult. Going back and forth from keto to non-keto is a little bit painful. Um, but the reason that I do it is mainly for mental health reasons, actually. Um, so. If you if you Google around the internet for keto, you'll see lots of amazing fat loss, weight loss, transformation journeys, which is fine. But I'm I'm 70 kilos at 186 centimeters, so I don't need to lose any weight at this point. Um, but for the mental health benefits are are just fantastic. So I I do it mainly to to moderate my experience of anxiety, um, some depression, and weirdly, um, although I found some research backing this up. Um, I experience traits of borderline personality disorder. So keto really helps with that, actually. So it's almost like I'm a different person when I'm on and off keto, and life just feels much, much easier when I'm on keto for that reason. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Like, this is stuff a lot of us struggle with. What has it been like before you started doing keto, and what's what's your experience after? So the experience off keto and before I found keto, I guess, was uh, emotional instability. So kind of rapid changes in mood. I characterized the, the BPD experience as one of an endless cycle of thoughts around, I know I shouldn't, but dot, dot, dot. And then doing a thing you know you shouldn't do, basically. Being on keto just turns all of that stuff down. So there's less in the way of intrusive thoughts, less in the way of worry about things everything is just much more stable and steady and easier to deal with and there are biological reasons why that is the case um i didn't know that when i first went on keto i was just trying out mm-hmm. another diet i'm I'm someone who experiments and, and tries things out a lot and then when i discovered hey this really works um it took me a few going back and forth on and off keto before i kind of figured out that oh no it definitely is keto that's doing this but once i realized it it's like it's an amazing tool to have in the back pocket for when things aren't going great you talk a bit about anti-fragility and Mm. it sounds as if keto helps you be more anti-fragile in a lot of different ways um can you talk a little bit about anti-fragility and how you exercise it in your life i've done a lot of n equals one type experiments in my life on myself Um, and knowing my own points of failure knowing the things that affect me both for good and for bad has helped Mm. me to avoid falling into circumstances that I want to avoid if you like Um, I don't want to be in by experimenting with stuff like keto um, uh, stuff like um, supplements and meditation and these kinds of things even Alexander technique which we'll talk about later I'm sure is part of my own endeavor to test and play with things that will help me improve 
what I somewhat grandly call my, the quality of my subjective experience. Um, because I know that if I get too far away from certain things then life just feels more difficult and feels worse. And that seems like a somewhat counterproductive way of being if there are small interventions that I can make that just improve everything, um, which is largely the things I find that like keto improves everything. That's really cool. And we're going to get into the meditation and Alexander technique stuff a little bit later. But sure. outside of um, spiritual and meditation, what other experimentations have paid off for you? Hmm, that's a good question. I'm trying to think of things that will fit. Um, what's coming up for me is a little bit around Twitter and online um, activities. Hmm. Well, you mentioned supplements. Yes. Are there any supplements that made a big difference? Yes, actually. So we so in the same vein as as keto, uh, there are some some supplements that I've found that really help me. Um, so things like uh, magnesium, like L-theanine. There are some herbal medicines that I'm taking at the moment from um, recommendation from a couple of people on Twitter, which are really helpful. And again, it's it's the, the attitude of so say that the example with um, the herbalists on Twitter who I found, um, so, so Grimhood and CK Eternity are I'm big fans of um, on Twitter. Mm. And it's, it's the same mindset where, you know, you see them tweeting about, hey, there's this blue lotus tea, which is great. And you go like, oh, okay, fine. And you can ignore it completely. Or you can go, well, okay, that sounds interesting. What if I just find some blue lotus tea and, you know, drink it for a while and see what happens? Mm. And I did that. And I've had... Um, you know, cause of both of them to discuss various things and it's you know, really cool stuff but it's the mindset of like okay let me lean into this and assume there's something here until i prove to myself there isn't rather than discount things until they prove to me there is something here i i have to kind of discount things more often myself but i also right. open myself up to serendipities around oh hey cool i've just discovered that um Butterfly PT is amazing, for example, which I never would have found on my own. Right. So it's like a positive asymmetry, right? Where the cost is really low for you to try something. Mm -hmm. But if it pays off even 1%, you know, if your life is 1% better, when those all add up over the course of a year or 10 years, that can be a huge difference. And it's funny that you talk about trying new things because there's like this small uprising among uh, our community with pine needles, like everybody started consuming not only pine needles, but all these different evergreen needles in tea, and they're experimenting with different ratios. I, I've never thought about this at all, but I think somebody just saw their Christmas tree and was like, I, I'm i going to eat that. And so they, start, they started drinking all this tea. I, I haven't done it yet. But um, but people are going miles out of their way using Google Maps to find out where the trees are that's and amazing. just taking people's needles. But uh, but yeah, this has been a small thing that's been growing. Um, but I think it's the new the new rave. I have to ask now because it's what I'm talking about. But what are the purported benefits of drinking pine needles and the different ratios? Like, what's the theory behind this stuff? If you know. I would have to interrogate them more about it because I, I haven't done it yet, but I think that it's mostly like relaxation, comfort. Um, I think it's similar to like mint and uh, nutrition. 
I don't know that much. I'm kind of making this up. <laughs> but, but yeah, I, I hear it's nice. I guess it's one of those things that people are still figuring out. Now, Michael, I think you're one of the most respected accounts in our Twitter circle. You harmonize professionalism and fun in a way very few others are capable. As I was looking at your Twitter history, it looks like in mid-2019, you were kind of like a reply guy. And then in September of 2019, you finished the writing cohort by Perel and Forte called Rite of Passage. You wrote an article that got you invited to speak in Korea, and your online presence has been growing at a brilliant pace. I'd like to know what was Rite of Passage like and how did it catalyze this massive change in your online presence and the way you accessed others in the world? Well, thank you for the kind words there. I feel like I'm a, a heavy shit poster, so being called respected <laughs> is is quite quite um, yeah, it's it's powerful to hear. Thank you. Um, so the story behind all this, if I go back a little bit before Rite of Passage, actually, when I was transitioning out of my last job into the job I've actually just quit, I had some downtime between the two jobs. So my notice field was quite relaxed, and I had a couple of weeks between the two jobs, and I was reading a book. I suddenly had this thought cycle of, oh, hey, that's an interesting point. I should write that down. And then I thought, yeah, but if you write it down, you won't see it ever again. So there's no point because you're not going to look back in the notes or in the book or whatever. And I, I watched as this insight from this book just kind of dropped through my brain. And I kind of saw how this would apply to so much of what I read. And mm-hmm. shortly thereafter, I came across the Building a Second Brain course by Tiago Forte. Yeah. which I took um, and I really enjoyed. It was very valuable. There was something missing at the end, which was the creative output, the the, the why for having a second brain. What's right. the point in collecting notes? And I did the second brain thing for a while without the output. And it just felt like a, a note-taking hobby, which, yeah. which didn't really make any sense to me. But then I found Rite of Passage, which was the the next step of second brain, essentially. is like, you know, why are you collecting information? What's the... What's the motivation for putting stuff out into the world? And it was it was really that that made me realize that I actually have a creative side of myself that is worth putting out there. And the Rite of Passage course kind of stepped you through the ideas of, well, getting from an idea to a blog post or a Twitter thread or whatever. And that was hugely transformational in that there is something there for me. There's something online, on Twitter, community, that I can go and take part in. I didn't know how to do that. And that's why I was a reply guy. And good for you for going back through 15,000 tweets to find that. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, was, it wasn't particularly good at first. And this last year and a half has been a learning experience of how is it best to be online such that you can be true to yourself without being either spammy or annoying or someone people ignore. Um, and the last year and a half really has been that journey for me. Uh, in my last conversation with Kersey, he asked me at the end of the episode, why am I doing this? Why am I having this podcast? And for me, it is an experience where I feel like my ability to express myself and practice my own art um, intersects with the ability to be generous. And I feel like that's what you're talking about, that we want to take our ideas and write them down and um, 
almost covet them. And then uh, we also have the second part that is necessary, that's key, which is that we need to communicate it to the world in a way that they can consume and use in their own life. So I really uh, vibe with that, even in what we're doing right now. Exactly. And there's something associated with that, which is having the sense that what I, what we have to say is worth saying and sharing and that other people mm -hmm. would care about us, me, this conversation, right? And that really is, it gets to the, the personal transformation experience that is available in writing online, in being on Twitter in the kind of active way that we are, is that you're not just building an audience, you're not just getting better at articulating ideas, is you are going through a journey of being seen, of being mm -hmm. someone who is part of a community and people look up to sometimes. And that really is one of the most powerful things that's available here to us is, is that the person you are having gone through the transformation process is not the same person who entered. I am no longer that reply guy from mid 2019, for example. Right. A lot of people feel like there's a block in that they haven't found their niche. And David Perel talks a lot about uh, kind of like an ikigai where you're trying to find that intersection of what people um, want you to be useful for and what they're willing to pay you for and what you enjoy doing and what you're good at doing. What do you have to say to those people that haven't found their niche? I would say, don't worry about it and just keep making things uh, until you find it. So I, at first, when I came across the idea of the personal monopoly, the idea of the niche, very similar concept, I, I got stuck by it because I thought I had to have one before I could make things. Um, and that was the complete backwards frame. It just stopped me from making anything because, oh, it's not within one of these three circles. Um, right. And the, the personal monopoly Venn diagram is, is a useful frame, but it made, I just spent hours drawing circles with different names and thinking, okay, what would it be like if these three circles, let's say energy consultant, Alexander Technique and British, I don't know what the hell, and in the middle of these, you know, what's, what's mm. the intersection of those three things? Well, nothing, that's not particularly <laughs> interesting. You know? um, so I, I managed to reframe this and I recently kind of came to me what I was doing is the idea of self-discovery or personal monopoly discovery through being an architect or being an archaeologist. This is how I, I framed it. So an architect does their, their thing, their design up front. They, they design out the entire building and then they build the building following that plan. Now that the, the design might be updated as the building is built, but fundamentally you're following the design and where you get what you expected. The archeologist on the other hand is someone who discovers maybe a stone protruding from the ground and think, oh, there's something here. I don't know what it is yet. Let me just right. start digging. And they'll update their idea of what the thing is as they dig further. So for me, switching from your creative journey, the personal monopoly from architect to archaeologist, that it's something that you uncover was far more useful to me than something you design. And actually that also applies to a sense of self. Um, the, the whole personal transformation of creativity is the more that you make, the more that you create, the more you discover who in fact you are. It's almost like a compounding through discovery that the more you unearth, like you say, um, the more you're you're capable of moving forward with the unearthing and, and you can create bigger and bigger and more important things 
um, as you discover more about your own capabilities. And this kind of ties into the clock of the long now, which is about using a long-term perspective. And you say it's your most gifted book. Why is it so valuable and how do you use it in your own life? So I love that book because it's actually just very short and very well written. Mm. And the, the information and insight density is just very high and it's a joy to read. It's, it's just a great co combination of of those those factors. But I love it as well because it, it just gives a different frame on on what now is, honestly. So I work in climate change and energy. Um, my My thinking has always been closer to societal scale than it has been to say fashion right? right i don't work in fast fashion i work in well 2050 targets what's the temperature rise by 2100 that kind of thing mm -hmm. so what does society look like at that point and the idea in and clock of the long now one of the key ones that i like so much is that the idea of what now is affects how you make decisions so if now is a day or an hour or a fortnight whatever then you'll make decisions without regard for beyond now after you know, tomorrow or in a month's time. If 2100 is within now, then you'll relate differently to it and make different decisions around it. And I, I think we need more of that in how we think about being in the world. Even th things are a long way off, we can make decisions now to affect them rather than thinking they're in some distant future. Absolutely. Regarding energy innovation, Mechanical Monk and Anti-Robust want to know what are you most excited about in the energy innovation and geoengineering space? And where do you think the technology is headed? Hmm, good question. So those are two very different spaces, actually. So energy innovation and geoengineering. Um, so I guess I can, I can ad lib on a couple of those things. So on, on energy innovation, which is the bulk of my career, I think we'll continue to see a lot of um, cost reduction and deployment of things like solar, of wind, onshore and offshore. The real disruptor, I think, is going to be stuff like energy storage. So in, in the UK, I, I used to work at National Grid uh, System Operator, which is the, the organization that balances supply and demand of the power system in real time. It was my job to build innovation projects for them. And the UK or GB um, is a, an interesting test case because we are an island system and we have an awful lot of renewables on the system already, um, more than many other countries. And because we're an island system, we don't have advantages of being heavily interconnected with a larger system like Europe. So things that happen here happen very quickly. When you have a lot of renewables, you have to be much cleverer at keeping the system contained at the right frequency and keeping supply and demand balanced in real time much more quickly and with much more uh, robustness and resilience than other places. So we really got to see what a system would look like when you have high penetration of renewables and things like storage, things like smart grids are really crucial to that. So I, I see a lot of interesting stuff happening in managing fully renewable grids and innovation leading up to that. And at the same time, one thing that's not so well known, at least in the UK, is that our heat demand is something like 10 times our power demand. Mm. And it's very, we've had hardly any impact on that um, in terms of innovation. It's the same as it has been decades ago because it's hard to decarbonize heat. So the decarbonization of heat 
is going to be a huge thing, at least in northern latitudes. In more southern latitudes, it's going to be, or equatorial is going to be air conditioning. Um, but right. here, it's, you know, do we switch from natural gas to hydrogen, to electricity, to biomethane, and that kind of thing? And this right. brings up really big questions around what big policy level decisions are you going to make around which way do we go? Are there any no regrets directions and that kind of thing? When I think about climate change, I have a lot of friends that don't believe in it. I find it somewhat difficult to make legible for people. And I could say, look at the past and and they always come back in a way that's where it's like a statistical anomaly. This is the way the world goes. If you had one minute to persuade people that either didn't know much about climate change or were climate change deniers, um, what could you say that you think is the most persuasive about why we should care? The challenge that people like me have is that one minute is never enough to convince someone who's a climate yeah. denier. But what I would say is that some of the charts that are worth looking at are the the increase in carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere of the last um, well, the last few hundred thousand years. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's 800,000 years worth of ice core data from the Vostok ice sheet, which shows a cyclical path between um, about two, 180 parts per million of CO2 and 280 parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere. And it's very cyclical. And temperature follows that perfectly over the same time period. We can tell that from ice core data as well. Then in the last 150 years or so, the curve hockey sticks, basically, and I know that climate deniers call it the hockey stick in a kind of disparaging way, but it does go mm. up vertically at that point, and so does temperature. And we know from lab studies, and we know from well, a lot of science at this point, from the greenhouse effect, that it is temperature that is lagging behind CO2. So CO2 went up first, then temperature is following it. And you can you can see this happening now, a lot of the, the forecasts that are being made from climate models around increasing weirdness of weather patterns like stronger hurricanes for example are happening um some of the the hottest years on record have been the last 10 years and every every other year seems to be the hottest year on record um so it just seems like there's a weight of evidence even from that couple of minutes of speaking let alone a huge amount of scientific evidence pointing towards it being a real thing um it it is scary but i'm very optimistic about uh the way energy innovation is headed and our ability to discover things that are so powerful in the space. Um, But I want to segue here into the Alexander technique, which of course you are a master of. So hit me with your Alexander technique elevator introduction. What is it? Um, to the best of your ability, I know you'll get a hundred different, hundred different answers from a hundred different <laughs> practitioners. But uh, what tips do you have for beginners, and how should people be thinking about this? Sure, and you're, you're exactly right there. If you ask hundred different teachers, you'll get a hundred different answers, and if you ask them the next day, you'll get a hundred different answers again. Unfortunately, <laughs> um, and this is something that Alexander and various people who worked with him recognize that it's very difficult to describe what this thing is almost by definition because it's head access is i think the non-wordy parts of the mind um Mm. so putting words on a a fundamentally subjective felt experience is is difficult but what alexander technique is the, the best um definition i'm working with right now is it's a way of constructively noticing all the things that you're doing unconsciously in response to stimuli 
and then learning how to either do something else or not do those things entirely in a constructive way. So mm. let's say, and this is often um, taught in the context of bodies and posture um, for, for good reasons, that's a very good way into the body and into the, into the things we're talking about. But I think the actual fundamentals of this thing are, are deeper than that. Um, Alexander talked about the idea of psychophysical unity. So the idea of body mind in different words, there's mm -hmm. no such thing as a purely mental process and no such thing as a purely physical process. They are one continuous thing. Right. Um, but the way into the body shows you the principles in a more concrete way. So let's say for example, that you are, you're a child or a teenager and your parent yells at you to stand up straight, right? So what mm -hmm. do you do is you immediately tense a bunch of muscles and hold yourself up with muscle. Um, and going a step beyond that, if a teacher yells at you in class to pay attention, what do you do? Very similar thing, right? You, you tense your body, um, right. particularly your, your face, you sit up straight, your neck is tight, all that kind of thing. Now, over time, we kind of forget that we've done that. So we, we, now, we now do the thing that paying attention looks like, or that standing up straight looks like, which is this heavily muscled, tight ten tension thing. And we don't know how to, we don't know that we're doing it. And we don't know how to stop doing it. So if you look at, if you ask someone to sit down in a relaxed way, they'll slouch because that's what mm -hmm. being relaxed looks like. If you ask them to sit upright in a, kind of in a attentive way, they will do the, what looks like the opposite of that, which is the muscle thing I was talking about. Not realizing that those two are kind of the same thing. They're both right. uh, uh, using of muscle to demonstrate what relaxed and attentive looks like. When there's another thing, which is neither of those things, which is just being naturally poised and that doesn't require muscle. And that's closer to what I call non-doing. So your body has a natural way of aligning itself which you don't need to do, but at some point your conscious mind got itself involved in the idea of how you stand, how you walk, how you sit. And it's possible to detach that process completely and allow the natural functioning to, to reassert itself. And that comes with it a sense of ease and lightness, effortlessness, all of these kinds of things. And Alzheimer's technique is a process whereby you learn to notice the things that you're doing and then constructively stop doing them. Right. I struggle. My main struggle is renewing and beginning again. So I've actually begun the practice of wearing mala beads, which are really intended for prayer, but I use them just to have something that I can feel, for instance, on my chest. And when I go, oh, that's cold, that reminds me, pay attention to your body, pay attention to your breath, um, relax, be aware of the world around you. So I use that as a trigger. Do you have any tips for beginners just to begin again, to say, here I am, and to break out of the reactive uh, loop that we get into? Sure. So that was actually a big part of my Alexander Technique training was coming back into that, that kind of full consciousness that you're talking about. Mm. So at first, it's very common for everyone to go unconscious to disconnect from the world. And then occasionally you'll wake up, you know, you have that sense of whatever, looking at your phone, for example, looking at Twitter on, on your phone for half an hour, and right. then suddenly coming like, where have I been for the last half hour? <laughs> um, and that I think is a universal experience. Yeah. And 
that is a very good question to ask. Where have I been for the last half hour? And this is um, what an Amazon Technique lesson looks like in many cases is as soon as someone drifts and goes unconscious in that way, you click your fingers, you yell at them and say, hey, hey, come back. Where have you just gone? And when someone pulls you, when someone points out that you're in that space and pulls you out of it while you're in it, it's extremely disconcerting because mm-hmm. you become much more aware of the fact that you were gone. Right. How do you do that? Like, how do you notice attention drift in other people um, when you're training them? Like, what do you look for? So here's where some of the magic comes in. So in kind of the lowest level of magic, you can just see it. So you'll see someone's eyes blaze over. They'll kind of, their facial expressions change, their posture changes a bit. They come out more rigid, more, more stiff, um, all that kind of thing. And you can just, you can just tell, you know, when you're, when you're talking to someone and they're thinking of something else, you know, they're not really there with you. So that's Mm -hmm. the, that's the lowest level of magic. I think anyone can do that. The higher levels of AT magic are, so if you're looking at someone, you can kind of feel it before you see it. I talk a lot about expanded awareness, this, this sense of open awareness, being connected with the world. And when you're teaching someone, both of you go into that same expanded awareness state, right? So it's not like I'm in my awareness and they're in theirs. We are both inhabiting the same world. And there's a right. felt sense attached to that. And when you're attuned to it, you can tell when someone else exits that world, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a felt shift of, I'm now alone in the space. And then right. you can look at them and go, okay, now they've gone. So that's level two, I guess, of, of magic and weirdness. Where I cannot explain how things work yet is that, let's say that there's a lot of hands-on work in Arizona Technique lessons. So um, let's say that I'm practice and playing the role of the student because I, I, I do a lot of work in or used to before I had COVID lockdowns mm-hmm. the main way I used to teach was teaching um, current trainees to become teachers of AT so I would often put myself in the position of the student they would play the role of teacher and I would give them feedback on their work and a lot of the time is if you imagine a situation where I'm sitting on a chair or standing looking out of the room and they're off to my side with their hand on my back I can't see them. All I know is their mm-hmm. hands on my back. And the quality of their awareness, the quality of their embodying this Arizona Technique thing is something I can pick up on through my own experience of the world. And wow. with just their hand on my back, I can tell within a second or two if they've gone mind-wandering without seeing them just with their hand on my back because the quality of my own awareness shifts in a way that I can recognize as that's not coming from me, it's coming from them. And I can go, hey, come back. I don't know how that works. <laughs> I don't, I'm not even trying to explain that. I just know after years and years and years of doing this that it works reliably, consistently. And I assume there is some mechanism by which it works. I just haven't quite nailed it down yet. That's an incredible practice, though. I really like that. It's also like extremely intimate and um, of course, people are learning about themselves and their own experiences of the world, but it's also, it sounds like a great way to connect to a partner or another person. It's almost like this trust, um, exercising this trust with other people and with yourself. I really love that. Connected to the Alexander Technique, John G. Bennett has a process to stimulate creative thinking. 
You first prepare the ground by absorbing information. Then second, you cultivate spontaneous insight by asking yourself a clear question and you create an internal vacuum and invite an answer. Finally, you translate that insight that arrives into consumable communication. Mm. Bennett's system resonates with the action bias you were talking about earlier regarding the rite of passage that we shouldn't just sit on information but make it legible for others. To me, Bennett's system has some overlap with a system called Gendlin focusing. Can you tell me what Gendlin focusing is, your experience with the two systems, and any important way in which the Gendlin focusing and Bennett's creative thinking may overlap? Sure. I mean, there's a lot in there. So it's going to be an interesting conversation. <laughs> yeah. I mean, go so, on. <laughs> <laughs> great. So, so Gendlin, actually, I'm not sure if it's Gendlin or Gendlin, um, says, has, has a, a method called focusing, which is a way of tapping into the, what he calls the felt sense. And the felt sense contains information around your, your beliefs and perspectives and general being in the world. So when something comes up, you can ask your felt sense, hey, what is, what's going on here? And you can get answers from the felt sense. And this is a very physical body thing. So it's a, I think it's a seven step process where you, in a nutshell, you identify uh, an issue, you identify what the felt sense, what the physical correlates of that thing are. And you kind of go back and forth with it asking, hey, is this anxiety or no, is this, is this fear? And you go back and forth and kind of get the right word until the felt sense tells you that you found the right thing. It's called the handle. And then from there, you kind of sit with it for a while and eventually it will shift. And the shift is a kind of body somatic processing of the thing that you couldn't quite capture or access intellectually. So that, I guess, leads into the creative thinking point right. around there is something else other than your intellect other than your thinking voice in your head that knows things that the thinking voice doesn't know and there are ways of accessing it so the creative thinking paradigm is to have a truly creative original thought it isn't necessarily you in quote marks that does it it's this other thing and then there are ways of accessing the other thing, creating space, asking the right kind of question and giving it space to, to give you answers that we can learn. Um, but the, I guess the fundamental point here is that there is this other thing that is involved in your life and it is you in as meaningful a way as, as your thinking voice is, if not more so. Mm. But we often don't recognize this in modern Western intellectual life. We just think that we are the thinking voice in our minds. But... Uh... But so we're, we're talking about Jenlin, we're talking about Bennett, and both of them are referring to this kind of emotional access, right? Where we ask for something or, um, or we start paying attention to something and then we kind of let the abyss bubble up into our consciousness. And for me, I kind of associate this with, with prayer and uh, with meditation and even the Alexander technique. And I was speaking to maybe Gray yesterday about this whole dynamic. And uh, she wants me to ask you, is the Alexander technique magic in the same way that um, 
we we're tapping into this kind of unknown area and then getting something extremely powerful out of it. Um, do you think there's any connection between magic and the Alexander technique? Oh, that is a fantastic question. Okay, where do I go from that? So it certainly it certainly feels like it um, when you're practicing it. Things happen without you knowing how they happen, as if they come from somewhere else. But you're fully conscious the entire time, um, more so than usual, in fact. And I guess what you learn is another way of tapping into your your body's innate knowing of things. And I guess it really comes down to what how you define magic, right? Right. So, if magic is those things that exist outside of your rational verbal understanding, then yes, I can see how there's intersection between these various things there. If you think that magic is somehow outside of the physical laws of nature and somehow supernatural, then I would argue no. Um, I don't believe such things exist. Where those things do exist then or seem to exist, then they're just a, a lack of our understanding of nature. Um, and we can catch up at some point. But certainly when when I'm teaching or in my training um, of Alexander Technique, there were certainly moments that I could not explain and still can't explain through any rational means. It's just there's a sense of, in the same way the experimentation I mentioned earlier, I've had enough things happen enough times consistently, falsifiably, repeatedly, testably, mm -hmm. that I know that they happen the way they happen. I just don't know the correlates physically for them. But it certainly feels like magic when they happen. We were talking about health earlier, and we're talking about 2021. And when you're on the STOA, you said that one of the annoying things about this is when you realize you have a choice and you can't get out of that. Like I'm drinking alcohol because I'm choosing to drink. And then you have to confront that. You can't just fall back on an excuse like people usually do. And that con confrontation is, I think, the most difficult part of self-improvement trying to use your willpower to say no. Uh, a lot of people go into dieting and exercise from that position of coercion, trying to say no, 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 no to the easy thing and, and the thing that's drawing them. Is there a different way to achieve the things we want to achieve? Like, how can people use the tools you've learned to pursue their own goals for 2021? That's a, a great question. And I just want to say, I really appreciate how much research you've done for this conversation. It, um, it's very, yeah, it feels good. Thank you um, for having watched the Stoa session, for example. I like that. So to answer the question, I think the first thing I would say is, and this is coming from my, my, my BPD experience, which is don't see yourself as the bad guy. It's so easy to go like, oh, look, I'm such a failure for having that alcohol drink. I didn't, I said I wouldn't have. I'm eating sugar again. Ugh. <laughs> and it kind of, you, you end up with this self-attacking um, self um, mode that I found only makes that part of you that reached for the drink in the first place more powerful mm. in a sense. So the answer, kind of a bit of a cliche, is you know, self-love, self-compassion, recognizing that the part of you that reached for a drink had its own motivation. And that motivation was probably 
positive in some sense. Going beyond that, I would say that things like the the AT um, Alexander technique skill of inhibition, which is the constructive non-responding to a stimulus, is helpful. So you can learn that just because you have an impulse to do something, that doesn't mean you have to respond to it. So as Viktor Frankl said, there is a space between stimulus and response. Right. And you can work on separating out stimulus and response. So just because you are hungry, and go back to fasting, just because you're hungry, you don't have to eat. Just because you're just because you want to yell at someone because they've pissed you off, it doesn't mean you have to yell at them. You can notice that impulse. And that's all you have to do with it. Right. I often um, describe this as being an alien anthropologist in the future, observing you and your body and how you respond to stuff. Like, oh, look, Michael appears to want to yell at this guy. How interesting. <laughs> right. Right. And then just leave it there. Because anything you try to do with the, the response, or if you decide to do a, stimulus, a response to the stimulus, you're going to get caught up in, well, in responding to it. If you can just notice it and leave it there in the context of all the other senses you have going on. So it's like, oh, look, I want to yell at this guy. Oh, look, I want to drink this glass of wine. And, oh, look, there's this person and there's the bird singing and there's all that space behind me. Suddenly that stimulus becomes a much smaller part of a much wider landscape of awareness. And it becomes much easier not to respond to it. Whereas what most people will, I think will experience is if you tell yourself, I'm not going to drink this Christmas, you'll see a glass of wine and then your entire awareness will collapse down to the size of the glass of wine. Right. And then you won't know anything else going on. And this is where AT comes in. Like, okay, notice that your awareness has been collapsed down into the idea that you might have the glass of wine. Right. Notice that in the way I describe, and then consciously zoom out again. Like there's the wine and there's the rest of the world. And I can choose to engage with the rest of the world, not just the glass of wine. Yeah, that seems like a really fruitful exercise. And we're talking here about not coercing yourself. And it kind of reminds me about uh, This is Water by David Foster Wallace, where he talks about how the mind is an excellent servant, but a terrible master. It, it's about getting above the surface level of your mind that's making all of these uh, reactive choices. And kind of breaking breaking that, like I said earlier, that reactive loop. And this makes me think of um, things you talk about, including trying. And on Twitter, Breath of Desire wants to know what clear intentions lightly held means. You discuss leading with your intention instead of trying to walk or trying to act. I've been thinking of the interplay between this, the coercion, the trying, and the intention. Can you tell us about clear intentions held lightly and how this is different from trying or different from coercion? Sure. So let me tell about the story of how I learned Alexander Technique in the first place. Mm. One, of my, one of my teacher's methods was in lessons, we would just play catch. We would throw a ball back and forth. And... I'm pretty confident with most people, if I threw them a ball, a lot of stuff would kick in around, it becomes important that you catch the ball, right? Mm -hmm. So much stuff around like, it would be silly. I would look silly if I dropped the ball. Um, 
I I need to prove how good my catching skills are by catching the right. ball. Um, and this is pretty deeply culturally ingrained at this point, to the extent that if you were to drop the ball, a lot of people just kind of apologize and make them like, oh, I'm so sorry, how silly of me, kind of noises. Right. Make excuses. Yeah, exactly. That oh, I'll do better next time. All of this kind of stuff comes up when, if you just remind the person that this is the least important thing you will ever <laughs> do in your entire life, right. you're in a training environment, there's no one looking at you, and I'm doing this to prove a point. It doesn't matter if you catch the ball or not. It's still very difficult to step out of that. And all the stuff that you're doing when you're trying to catch the ball is is trying, right? You'll, you'll see people right. coordinate their bodies. Like, where should my hand be? Oh, I'll kind of bounce around a bit. I, you know, you, you can imagine what someone is doing when they're trying, what they look like when they're trying to catch a ball. Now, what you learn is that it's perfectly possible to notice the ball coming towards you, intend to catch the ball, so set a clear intention, and mm-hmm. then allow your hand to go to the ball. Right. And this will happen without you doing it. It will happen by itself and it will seem very weird. And what that looks like from the outside is so much cooler than you looked like when you were trying to catch the ball. It's just that you're standing there very, very light and easy. And then suddenly your hand flies out and accurately and perfectly, effortlessly catches this ball. You didn't even look at it, seemingly. And that's, right. that's the power of not trying, but having clear intention. So that's the clear intention part. The lightly held part is is important because if you hold intentions too tightly, then you end up trying, right? So you end up losing sight of the fact that you could do something else. So with Alizana technique, a lot of what happens is you notice how your, your psychophysical system responds to stimuli, like catching a ball or picking up an object or sitting down. As soon as you're overcommitted, intentionally shall we say too tightly holding this intention you cease to become available to other options right so you end up going in this trying doing mode rather than the the non-doing effortless mode so by holding every one of these intentions very lightly such that you can let go of it at a moment's notice you can do anything else at a moment's notice Mm -hmm. so an analogy i use at this point is a martial arts one so if you imagine you're a martial artist and you've got three opponents, one to your left, one in front, and one to your right. Mm-hmm. And at any moment, any one of them could attack you, but you don't know which one. As soon as you pick one to defend against, the guy opposite him attacks you. If you remain available, wide open, patient, waiting, and then as soon as one of them flinches, then you move, then you won't get hit in the face. Mm-hmm. But that's the, that's the light, that light holding of intention is for all of these stimuli coming towards you. Yeah, I could respond to that. I could respond to that. And if you apply that globally to all stimuli all of the time, you find yourself in what basically feels like a different set of consciousness, whereby everything just feels easy and you are available to the entire world all at once. And that, I guess, is the end goal almost, or one of the goals of something like Alexander Technique. I feel as though this must also apply to music, uh, on Twitter, Raphael Bolsing, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, he, he was talking about how you sing, you play the sax. Uh, how does your experience um, with Alexander Technique and, and these other techniques affect your experience with music? And if you played the saxophone or if you sang before you started these techniques, how has it changed your experience of them? So interestingly, I actually 
did all these things for the most part in my life before I found AT. Mm. So while I have a sax in my room, I, I, I had it refurbished recently, but I haven't played it properly in a very long time. Same with singing. Mm. And I'm now very curious to go back to them because my my experience before these more, I guess you call it intuitive practices, felt sense practices like I was on technique, was that music was a thing that was a bit forced, a bit performative. But now I can see the, the value of play in a different way. In the right. same way as being creative online is it's it's something that kind of you let emerge from within you rather than something that you you actively do. I guess it might sound like a cliche, it might sound obvious, but until you've had the the experience of what playfulness is actually like, it's impossible to to switch into that mode without getting trapped by doing. <laughs> Just what you think is playful. Um, and that's a frustrating space to be in. But it's a place that I would like to help people get to where they can mm. access the playfulness rather than finding themselves back in that, oh, I must play this music well. Oh, I should be I should be playful, for example. I should be creative is the best way of not being creative or playful. Ah. Because as soon as you introduce that judgment into it, you're back in it's important that I catch the ball mode. Right. Right. So if you can let go of all the judgment and just let everything express itself, then new things come up uh, and honestly I, i'm looking forward to playing music again from that perspective but i, I haven't been able to in a, in a while unfortunately you'll have to get back to me with that one and tell me how <laughs> how it goes you know riff Happy with that a little bit. i would i would love to learn more we're we're almost out of time here but my final question is about your balls uh your youtube <laughs> went from average looking to absolutely gorgeous um james stuber wants to know about your youtube setup especially your lighting or your bals so can you share some of your wisdom about some of your your growth process on youtube yeah absolutely and i can share that um bal stands for big ass lamp um which comes from uh the part-time youtube academy run by ali abdal um which i i helped out on um, last month actually um, and I'm now looking at this enormous um, studio lamp, which looks ridiculous in my, my living room. <laughs> um, but, you know, production value, so that's good. Um, so, I mean, I I started out the journey, and I think that's actually really important for, for new creators doing this stuff, is that I started out as simply as I could with kit I already had. So I, my first five YouTube videos were on my, my phone, um, mm. and the cheapest... Um, lavalier microphone I could get on Amazon, like ten pound Boya thing that attached to my my shirt, and I made a few videos just with that. And then as time went on, I upgraded things bit by bit. So I got a fancy camera, I've got an external microphone, and I've got the the bow as well now. But just again, not to let these things hold me back from from making the first place. Um, for me, the the value is in uh, quantity over quality. So I'm, I'm pleased to hear that my, my production value has increased. That's, that's oh, great. Yeah. But I didn't, I'm didn't. i not trying to optimize for production value. Um, up until Christmas and taking a few weeks off, um, I was optimizing for, for volume, for getting comfortable in front of a camera. And because I have this online course on AT, which has a lot of video behind it, I found the two very synergistic. So since I was already making YouTube videos, that made me way more comfortable 
doing pre-recorded lectures, I guess, for the course. And since I'm doing stuff for the course, that makes it you know, much better for, for ongoing YouTube. So I like finding these synergistic things. So if I already have the equipment for the course, I may as well do it for YouTube, that kind of thing. Because actually talking energetically to a lens is very difficult when you first do it. Um, and the only way to get used to it is to do it a lot. So that's what I optimize for. But now I've spent way too much money on, um, <laughs> on equipment. I don't plan to spend any more for a while. So what you have now is what's going to stay, I think. So, Michael, I learned so much. Uh, there's so many things that I wanted to discuss, but we didn't get to. Maybe we can do this again sometime and um, touch on everything. Um, I, I would love to dig deeper into climate. We didn't even discuss Zen, which is a, a whole nother big topic. Um, but thank you so much for coming on and, and thank you for your continued generosity. Thank, thank you, Nick. I've, I've had a really fantastic time. Um, it's been great talking to you and I'm very up for doing a part two at some point um, as, as you want to. After the sacks, after you get back into it. <laughs> exactly. We'll yeah. give, it, give it a performance or something. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you. I hope you loved that one as much as I did. Please subscribe to the show on becomingcreature.substack.com. I'd love if you left me some feedback. I'm doing what I can to make every episode as good as possible. Our music is by Frank IV. This has been A Becoming Creature.